once the jury has heard that this is illegal, this is illegal, this is illegal, they tend to think, oh, well, all of that stuff's illegal. And then when the judge finally retracts it, you know, you can't unring the bell. to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey, everybody. Welcome on back to the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 84. Before we get into today's show, I want to take a second to let you know about Health Excellence Select, an amazing alternative to Obamacare, which utilizes health sharing to cover your medical costs. That's Health Excellence Select. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the author of Blue Tent Sky, How the Left's War on Guns Cost Me My Son and My Freedom. Brian Aitken, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on today. Well, Brian, thanks so much for coming on to speak with me today. And and I have to say, just off the bat here, you know, I, I read a lot of books for this show. And whenever I have a guest on who's written a book, I try to read it beforehand. But your book, uh, which I read before I even had thought about you as a guest on the show, I have to say this book really moved me, me like no other. It's it's a very engaging read. Uh, it's very impressive, especially for a first-time author. And I know it's kind of cliche to say I couldn't put it down, but I literally couldn't put it down. I carried it with me uh, on my iPad for a day. I pretty much, I read it at work. I read it at the gym. I read it at home. Uh, I, I quite literally could not put it down. And you hold nothing back. You name names of the people that you feel wronged you. You call it the people who are responsible uh, for your predicament, which we'll get into in a moment. But I just want to really start off by, by complimenting you on this book. And I can't recommend it highly enough, which uh, obviously as we go through this interview, people will get a better idea of why. But you know, great job on that. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. So, uh, you know, we'll get into the incident, which occurred in a little bit, um, you know, how, how you were actually arrested in New Jersey for essentially transporting guns that you legally owned. Uh, but prior to that incident, you know, let, let's take the clock back a little bit and kind of get to know who Brian Aiken was before all this happened. So, you know, before this incident, what sort of political beliefs did you hold? How did they first take shape? Oh, man, that man is a distant, distant memory. <laughs> uh, let's see. I um. Uh, I was a neocon. I mean, I was a, a true-blooded neoconservative. Um, I didn't know that I was a neoconservative. I didn't know that that you know that term existed. But I grew up in a very Republican household, and uh, you know we trusted the police and we trusted what the media told us, and that's just kind of who we were as a family. And I'm not the only one that's evolved a lot politically and you know philosophically as a result of this. Pretty much everyone in my family, and not just my immediate family, but like aunts, uncles, grandparents, the whole nine yards, everybody has kind of had, you know, the wool pulled back. Sure. Wow. Yeah, it's a common thing I hear. One of our contributors uh, to my website, John Odermatt, he actually wrote an article, How Ron Paul Woke Me Up From My Neoconservative Coma, because he used to feel like he was a neocon as well. And often it takes, you know, just hearing a speech or reading a book to sort of change your views a little bit and open your eyes. In your case, it took a little bit more of a personal experience. So why don't you just give us sort of the, the brief version? Obviously, you detail this in, in extreme detail in your book, but give us the kind of the cliff nose version, I guess, of just what happened to you um, in New Jersey. Why were you stopped by the police? How did they go about arresting you? And what exactly all happened there? Yeah, it's hard to do a Cliff Notes version, but, right. uh, but I will do my best. So in January of 2009, I had just finished moving back from Colorado to New Jersey. 
and had just landed a new job, landed uh, an apartment, and on January 1st, started moving into that apartment. On January 2nd, I was doing the second leg of my, of my trip. So I was on my way down to my mom's house to pack up my car and you know, pretty much put everything that I owned into the car and drive north. That included firearms that I owned legally. I you know, passed the ATF background check, the FBI background check, the CBI check. I went through NICS just like everybody else. Not just that, but I had flown with them from Colorado to New Jersey. So I'd even gotten clearance from TSA. So even TSA said I could fly with them. Now, I'm, uh, I'm packing up my car, and right before this happens, I get a text message from my former wife letting me know that she was canceling visitation with my, uh, with my then one-year-old son for the fourth week in a row. And at this point in time, the, the only reason I had moved from Colorado to New Jersey was to be closer to my son so that I could see him. I had been married. Things didn't work out. We lived in Colorado, had a house, a job, the whole nine yards. And we both kind of moved back to New Jersey to be closer to family. And I wanted to be part of his life. Around this time, we had just finished spending about $30,000 just on the custody situation. Wow. It was a very, very acrimonious divorce. Yeah. Um, and, uh, to give you an example, I'll, I'll use, I'll use her words. Uh, she couldn't forgive me for not being able to forgive her. And I don't think I need to go into, into those details. You know what they are. You've read the book. Yeah, They're absolutely. in the book. Um, I'd rather not, you know, dwell on that too much though. Yeah. But the, the point being, it was, a, it was a really tough time for you. And, and you were, you were just basically in, only in New Jersey at this point, really to, to be with your son and try to make that work in any way you could. That was it. And, and she wasn't letting that happen. And so while I was packing up my car, I asked my mom if there was any way that you know, she or my dad could help me out financially to help get a lawyer and, and change this. And eventually, you know, I filed a motion and uh, I got custody of my son back. And, and the judge agreed with me, which to, you know, was a big surprise to me because he didn't really like me as a, as a conservative individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but on my way out of, uh, of my house, my parents' house, when I was about to move, I said to my mom, I don't know what the point of being here is if I can't see my son. Uh, I used a little bit more flowerly language. You know, I wrote what I really said in the book, but I don't want to say it on your podcast. Uh, you can go for it. We can bleep you if we need to. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather not. It's up to you. Okay. It's, it's in the book. Right. <laughs> um, well, like 15 minutes after I leave my parents' house, I get a phone call, and it's my mom's cell phone calling me. And I'm like, why is I guess, I guess my mom's you know, just calling to make sure everything's okay. So I answer the phone, and it's a police officer. And apparently my mom had dialed 911 and hung up the phone, and the police came out to her house for an abandoned 911 call. Now, a little background. My mom managed a bunch of social workers. She worked for the Burlington County Family Support Organization, and they had trained her. If anybody says anything that you think you know, could be questionable, like they might hurt themselves or somebody else – call the police immediately and bring them in. Apparently she dwelled on this for like 15 minutes after I left, dialed 911 and the police came out because she hung up the phone for an abandoned 911 call. So she basically took your statement, what's the point of being here? You were kind of referring to like New Jersey in, in, in general, but he, she took it as maybe that you were suicidal or something like that for a moment. She That may have crossed her mind, I guess. <laughs> I think for like the slightest of seconds and I, under, I understand like why that's happened and a lot of people don't understand how I don't hold a grudge against my mom. Uh, but I, we, I had a suicidal brother. Uh, so we, as a family went through that and it was a very sensitive subject. And if, I think my mom was just on like heightened alert at that point in time because of everything she was dealing with, with him. Uh, but the, 
the interesting part of the story where, where all of my constitutional rights get flushed down the toilet starts with this phone call from Officer Joy in the Mount Laura Police Department. And he pretty much tells me that, you know, he, gets, he got this abandoned 911 call and he had to come and check it out. And he says to me, anytime they get uh, a domestic call, they want to check and make sure nobody's been, you know, abused. And so he tells me he wants me to come back to my mom's house so that he can check me for bruises and make sure that I hadn't been assaulted, which is the craziest thing that I've ever heard. Because my, I mean, my mom, my mom's a small woman, but you know, small women, you know, they can they can throw a punch too. I'm sure of it. But she's like 105 pounds and pretty much lives her entire life for her children, her grandchildren, and other people's children. That's why she got in, into into social work in the first place. So the entire thing seemed really disingenuous, like there was some sort of ulterior motive that they wanted me to get back to my parents' house that they weren't really telling me. Uh, So I asked him if I was legally required to come back. He said no, and I said, okay, well, I'm not going to come back then, and we get off the phone. About a minute later, he calls back, and he says, uh, listen, we've issued a statewide general alert. And every police department in the state of New Jersey is going to be on the lookout for the make and model of your car. So you can either come back on your own or you can do this the hard way and we'll pick you up and bring you back. And at this point, you know, there's no probable cause. There is no legal reason where they can issue essentially a statewide manhunt for me. But this is New Jersey and that's what they've done. And what I found out since then is that in that minute between those two phone calls, Officer Joy asked my mom if I owned guns, and she said yes. And he said, do you know if he has them on him? And she said, I don't know. So at that point forward, it became a gun hunt. Nobody was concerned about me, my well-being, my family's well-being. This entire thing was, oh, this guy has guns in New Jersey. Well, guns are illegal in New Jersey, so let's go find those guns. So why when an officer hears the word guns, I mean, we have a Second Amendment in this country where theoretically supposed to be allowed to uh, keep and bear arms. Why did that word gun set this alert off in the officer's mind? Can you detail a little bit how sort of the legal system in New Jersey looks at guns and how there was actually directives coming from above from the attorney general's office about how to sort of, uh, I I don't remember the exact words you used, but basically to viciously go after anyone that has guns. Yeah, so in New Jersey, firearms are pretty much illegal, right? And then you have a number of exemptions that make ownership legal. Uh, But on its face, New Jersey is, I don't know if it's one of the only or the only state where, you know, guns are pretty much illegal unless you have a concealed carry permit to carry it around. And then they have all the exemptions, like you can have it in your house. You can take it from your place of purchase to your house, from your house to go to the shooting range, from your house to go hunting, and, of course, from one house to another when you're moving. And that's exactly what I was doing. Uh, But in New Jersey in 2008, the attorney general, Ann Milgram, issued a directive to prosecutors saying that uh, they were to prosecute all gun cases vigorously, strictly, and uniformly, meaning that people like myself and Shanine Allen and Stefan Josie Davis uh, and and the new individual, Gordon, the 72-year-old who had the antique firearm, and he's facing 10 years in prison, all of these people were to be prosecuted uniformly and strictly and vigorously, just like they were a gang member out in Newark who had an illegal firearm and was holding up uh, a supermarket or something. So in the, in the eyes of New Jersey, we were one in the same. And, and there was a change in the law, and that change in the law still exists. But in 2008, the Graves Act was amended, 
Illegal possession of a firearm used to be a fourth degree felony. You could get like a year's probation, a slap on the wrist for it, you know, if it was just a simple misunderstanding. But New Jersey changed it under John Corzine to a second degree felony and made the possession of a firearm the equivalent of a criminal act, a violent crime. It used to be a fourth degree felony if you just possessed it and a second degree felony if you used the firearm in the commission of a crime. And so what they did was they made possessing the firearm the violent crime itself. Just just holding this object that is declared scary is, is in itself a crime, not the actual committing a real crime or what, what I would consider a real crime, actually assaulting someone. Now, Brian, how did you actually end up being arrested? Did you when you actually, you know, after this threat was, was put out there that they were going to issue a statewide manhunt for you, which seems so crazy, uh, you did eventually decide to come back to, to the house. So what actually happened at the house that led to your arrest? I got back to my parents' house. Uh, I mean, obviously, I came back, and I think one of the biggest mistakes that I've made uh, in the past six years is actually listening to that police officer and returning to my parents' house. But I, you know, I wasn't really familiar with what the Fourth Amendment entailed. I, I know now that I wasn't legally obligated to go back. But once I got back there, the the police officer, you know, the very first thing he said was, "Do you own? Do you have guns on you?" It wasn't, you know, how are you feeling? Are you suicidal? There wasn't an ambulance there. There wasn't a social worker there. They didn't take me to a crisis intervention center. Nothing, none of that. Nothing even close to that. It was all, do you have those guns? Your mom said that you're on guns. And uh, so I said yes, and they asked if they could search my car. And I said, I'd prefer if you didn't. Uh, you know, I really don't want you to. If for no other reason, then I just spent several hours packing it up from floor to ceiling with everything that I own. And I don't want it strewn all about, you know, my parents' front yard in the street. Especially when you've done absolutely nothing wrong. Yeah. I'm, well, it's New Jersey, so you never really know. Like, right? At least in a, in a rational person's view of what wrong is. Yeah. And so he, the, this officer, Joy, gave me the ultimatum again, where it could be the easy way or the hard way. This was the second time that I would, I would take the easy way. And it's the last time that I took the easy way when dealing with the state of New Jersey. But he told me that I could either consent to the search of the car or he would take me to a psychiatric hospital and force me into a 72-hour psychiatric hold. And during that process, they would impound my car. And as part of impounding the car, they would have to search it so they could itemize each and every item inside of the car to make sure that I would get everything back. And he told me one way or another, we're getting inside of that car. Wow. So I figured, well, this is Friday. I don't exactly want to spend uh, you know, the whole weekend in a psychiatric hospital. That sounds scary. So I'll just sign the consent form. And I signed the consent form, was interrogated for about three hours, had my car searched, they didn't seem to mind that I had four ice axes or 400 feet of climbing rope. They didn't think that was dangerous to anybody. But once they saw the firearm, it, it was kind of like that was game over. Or at least I, th I thought that's what it would be. But one officer seemed to know that my ownership and my possession of the firearms wasn't illegal. And his name was Michael Palladino. And he actually took the firearms up to my parents' front door, gave them to my dad, and said, uh, you know, put them inside the house safe, and Brian can come back and get them tomorrow. Uh, they wound up not fitting inside of, my, inside of my parents' safe, and my family, my dad being the trustworthy people that we are, came back to the front door and said, they don't fit, what else, you know, what else should we do? And at that point, uh, they called their watch commander back at the uh, police department, and he said, well, just arrest them then. So I was arrested at that point uh, for illegal possession of unregistered firearms, 
even though registration is not a legal requirement in in the state of New Jersey, I'd spent so much time explaining to them that I had just caught the New Jersey State Police three days earlier. I was transporting them exactly how the New Jersey State Police told me to transport them. I, I mean, if you look at my arrest report, and you look at the statute that tells you how to transport your firearms, it's like a copy and paste job. That's how exact it was. You did everything. I mean, everything anybody could be asked to do to follow the law, to you know, do things the quote-unquote right way, to transport the guns to New Jersey properly, to transport them within New Jersey properly, and yet you are arrested, like you said earlier, just as if you were a gangbanger, just, just lighting people up on the street or, or waving your gun around or something like that when you didn't even have it on you. You had it in your car, properly stored. It's really fascinating. So what, what about that charge of having unregistered guns in a state where there's no gun registration? Did they just make that up? I mean, is that even a, a real legal charge? Where do they come up with this? These local cops just have no idea what the laws are. I mean, that's really the problem. There's so many laws that they have no idea. I, I think if, if it had been the New Jersey State Police, I would never be having this conversation with you because so many of them that I've met are familiar with what the laws are. And, and I don't think it ever would have happened. But the local cops just had literally no idea that, you A, you were allowed to own guns. They thought I needed a permit to own guns. They thought that the guns needed to be registered. And none of those things are true. Uh, and when I was cuffed to a bench inside of the Mount Laurel Police Department, I told them, you know, you just gave me a citation for illegal possession of unregistered firearms. Uh, I know I'm just a 24-year-old kid, but I'm pretty sure that charge doesn't exist. And they went back, they looked it up, and then they amended it, and they gave me a different citation that said illegal possession of firearms, and they got rid of the registration part. Huh. Wow. So these, these guys don't even know the, the, the laws that they're out there allegedly trying to enforce. It's totally crazy to me. So why don't we get into a little bit more of, of your, the legal process? And, and one thing that struck, struck me uh, kind of going through your story and, and everything you had to go through, that everybody, and I mean everybody, from, from the judges to the, the prosecutors to even like your first lawyer, seemed to just be pushing you to accept the plea deal, to, to basically agree that you did something wrong here. So tell us a little bit more about that and, and about how people were just kind of pushing you for this deal at all times, every, every step of the way. Everybody was. Uh, I, my lawyer immediately was hired to get me all the way up into trial, uh, but very quickly he started applying the pressure for me just to take a plea deal. And that plea deal is a five-year sentence with a one-year mandatory minimum of incarceration before being eligible for parole. So I wasn't very eager to take that deal. But he and the prosecutor kept on telling me, like, this is the best deal you're going to get. If you go to trial, you're going to be found guilty. And I figured, you know what? I didn't do anything wrong. I'll put it in front of a jury. And if a jury really, really thinks that I'm a criminal, if they really think that I'm this horrible criminal that that the court is trying to make me out to be, then I'll have to deal with that. But I don't think that'll happen. I think I'll be acquitted at trial. And then I I appeared on Freedom Watch with Judge Andrew Napolitano because my lawyer got sick and tired of me turning down plea deals. So he dropped me as a client. He kept all the money and dropped me as a client. And I'm, I'm left high and dry. I've spent all of my money on this lawyer and my custody lawyer. And now I really don't have any money. And so out of sheer desperation, I went on Freedom Watch. And after that, I got Evan Knappen as a lawyer, and Richard Gilbert of his firm represented me. But my very next hearing with the judge, the judge told me, I'm the judge in your case. Judge Napolitano has nothing to do with this case. He's not the judge here. He's no longer a judge in New Jersey. Uh, Fox News is trying to use you. 
you're guilty. You're going to go to jail. You should take the plea deal. The judge said this? Yeah. Said you're guilty? Is it, I mean, it... Six, six months before trial. Wow. Six months before trial. A, a, a single witness hadn't even testified. No evidence had been presented. Uh, we're just going through pretrial motions, just pretrial hearings. And the judge is up there telling me that I'm guilty because guns are illegal. And I mean, there's just a whole bunch of problems throughout the entire trial. Uh, I mean, at one point in time, both the prosecutor, the officer who was testifying and the judge, all three of them told the jury that hollow point bullets are illegal in the state of New Jersey. And they said it multiple times. And that's not true. We had to have my lawyer get them to retract that statement. So the judge had to retract it to the jury. Uh, but there's a saying that goes, you can't unring the bell. You know, once the jury has heard that this is illegal, this is illegal, this is illegal, they tend to think, oh, well, all of that stuff's illegal. And then when the judge finally retracts it, you know, you can't unring the bell. Do you think that's a strategy of the prosecution to, I mean, purposely put out false information, even knowing that it might that they might have to quote unquote retract it later? But, you know, like you said, once you hear illegal guns, hollow point bullets, it all sounds really scary to people that might not know about it or know the actual law. I mean, is, is that intentional on their part, do you think? I'm not sure if it's intentional or if they really are just that oblivious. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me either way. It's quite frightening either way. I'm not sure which is scarier, if they're, if they're just malicious or if they're so ignorant of the laws that they're the ones that are trying to prosecute people for. Well, I, I definitely do think that the prosecution became malicious. Um, it might not have started out that way, but once I started appearing on Fox and, you know, after I you know, got a little bit of national media attention, it definitely became malicious. So do you think your appearance on uh, Judge Napolitano's show, Freedom Watch, obviously that drew so much attention to your case and drew so much support towards you, but at the same time, do you think it sort of uh, inflamed the judge, inflamed the prosecution, and uh, maybe made them a little, even more vicious than they might have been otherwise in, in trying to, like, essentially trying to send you to jail? Oh, absolutely. Um I mean, without Freedom Watch, I wouldn't have gotten my lawyer. The NRA wouldn't probably have picked up the tab for a large part of my trial and my appeal. So I'm very glad that Judge Napolitano had me on his show. Uh, I think I'm much better off because of it. And at the end of the day, you know, this this judge and the prosecutor were going to do, you know, what they do. Then they have an incentive, especially the prosecutor. He has an incentive to make sure he gets convictions. So he wasn't not going to, you know, pursue this to the furthest extent of the law just because I didn't appear on TV. Sure. And even if it inflamed the prosecution or what have you, I mean, these guys were, were trying to prosecute you either way. And you weren't going to you were not going to take that plea deal. It's very clear in that book that that you like you said, you weren't going to do things the easy way anymore. You're going to do things the right way. And you were not about to admit to doing something wrong when you didn't. I mean, you didn't even do something accidentally wrong. You literally followed the letter of the law, like you said, copying, pasting basically exactly what the New Jersey State Police said that you had to do to transport those guns. Now, why don't we talk a little bit more about the jury and the process there and, and how the jury was basically manipulated to view things and to view what you're doing as illegal, even when it wasn't. And I know at one point the jury even went back for clarification a few times on certain issues. Can, can you get into that a little bit? Yeah. So the jury, um, you know, eventually they, they had to go and deliberate as juries do. And when that happens, the judge tells the jury what charges they're supposed to consider. And so the charges that they, they were supposed to consider included illegal possession of firearms, illegal possession of hollow point ammunition, and illegal possession of high-capacity magazines, which for anybody outside of the state of New Jersey, 
those are just standard capacity magazines. Those are the mags that come with the gun from Smith & Wesson. It's very manipulative language that they use. It is. But included with those charges should be any of the exemptions, and that includes federal and state exemptions. And so there's the federal exemption, the Firearm Owners Protection Act, that uh, made transportation of my firearms from one place where they are illegal to another place where they are illegal, you know, protected under the Safe Passage Act. Then the state of New Jersey has a number of exemptions for how and when you can transport your firearms. And I mentioned those earlier. So the judge is looking at these exemptions and he pretty much says, well, they're pretty much the same thing. So I'm not going to tell them about the federal exemption. I'll just tell them about the state exemptions. And then a couple minutes later, he changes his mind. He's like, you know what? I'm not, inc- I'm not going to include the state exemptions either. So I'm not going to tell the jury what these, what these laws are that protect Brian's right to transport his legally owned firearms. Meanwhile, the prosecutor can use completely misleading language, can say that hollow point bullets are illegal when they're not. And meanwhile, you can't even present the actual evidence to, that, that shows that you're not doing anything wrong. It's really, it's really unbelievable. Well, but the, the jury caught on to this because the entire time we had been talking about how it was moving and every single person that testified, even the officer who arrested me testified that I was moving at that very time. At the very time that he arrested me, the reason that he put on the bail form that I shouldn't be granted bail was my length in the community. My residency had only been three days and I, and I was in the process of moving. Uh, so, I mean, all, all of the evidence points to the fact that I had been moving over a period of time and I was moving at that exact moment. And the jury caught on to that. So when they were deliberating, the jury came back three times with different requests, begging the judge to tell them what the exemptions were. And I have one of them right here in front of me, and I'll read it for you. It, It doesn't get any more plain language than this. Please define the exceptions to the law for all three charges. That is, it was announced that moving is an exception. We need to be clear of all exceptions, if any, for each charge. And the judge just kept telling them, you're not allowed to know. All you're allowed to consider is whether or not he possessed. If he possessed his firearms, it doesn't matter what exemptions exist. I'm telling you as the judge that I'm the law, and all you're allowed to consider is whether or not he had these things. This is pretty much an outlaw judge at this point. I mean, he's basically saying, you can't even hear the evidence that I know will show that this man is innocent of these charges. Instead, I'm just going to claim, I'm going to make an arbitrary claim that any possession of guns at all by this man, Brian Aitken, makes him guilty of these charges. I mean, and and so... Unfortunately, ultimately, with the information they were given, despite their multiple requests to have clarifications about these exemptions, sadly, they did come forward and find you guilty of the charges presented. So can you just tell us about um, what was your actual sentence once you were found guilty? Uh, Seven years in state prison with a mandatory minimum of 36 months before being eligible for parole. Wow. I spent that at the Burlington County Jail and then at Kraft in Trenton, which is the central reception and assignment facility, that that's the place that really most like resembles Shawshank. Uh, you know, like the big stone blocks, it's kind of falling apart. There's rats running around and, uh, you know, maybe it's a little green mileish because, you know, there's, there's some violent people in there. You're really thrown into the mix, but in a large part, you know, uh, you're not really worrying so much about the inmates. You're worrying about the corrections officers in, in that place. And then I, uh, then I was moved to Mid-State Correctional, which wasn't much better. That's located on Fort Dix. And, uh, you know, it's, it's primarily people who uh, can't be in general population. So they, they stuck me in there mostly with sexual predators and pedophiles. 
Why did they decide you couldn't be in the general population? I have no idea, but uh, honestly, it it was probably a favor. Oh, so this that actually helped you then? It kept you away from, I guess, uh, what potential violence and that kind of thing? Yeah, so the, the, the two options that everybody told me that I was going to have, the two prisons that they said I was going to go to based upon, my, I mean, weapons charges and, and my age uh, is, I think one of them's called Bayview or Bayside. I, there's two of them, but they both have reputations for, you know, young kids to get initiated into gangs. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of people trying to prove themselves. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people get hurt. You know, a lot of people die in those prisons. Uh, so when they said mid-state, I was like, well, I don't know what the heck mid-state is, but at least it's not one of those two places. Right, right. Uh, I don't want to get too much into this because you talk about it a lot in the book, but can you just kind of touch on some of the people you met along the way through the various prisons you went through? Did you find that a lot of people that were there felt like really, truly violent people that should be there? I'm sure there, there there's some of those, but I mean, how many people did you find that were maybe not similar to you in terms of the charges, but similar maybe in the sense that they hadn't committed violence against anybody, people that might have just been there for drug possession and that kind of thing? What, what did you find in, in, in your experiences there? I mean, I, I would like to confirm my own bias and, and tell you that I met a lot of nonviolent people, uh, but that wouldn't be true. I, I met a, a lot of uh, violent people who needed reform of some sort, uh, you know, people who had, were in there for murder, they were in there for rape. And, uh, you know, just I think given the prison that I was put in, you have a lot of pedophiles and, and sexual predators and a lot of bloods who were in there for murder. Uh, so, you know, the, the guy I think, you know, who's in there because he got caught with a small amount of like marijuana, uh, you know, he's typically in jail. He didn't wind up in, in the prison that I was in. Gotcha. You're, you're basically, a lot of this might be because of the way they, they classify this felony, they're basically classifying you the same way they would classify a very, a very, very violent felon. So here, here you are, this guy who tried to follow the letter of the law, never harmed anybody at all, and is in there with some of the most violent people you know, around. And that that's, must have been a truly frightening experience. Yeah, they, they treated me as an arms trafficker. And even when I was in there, when, when it came up in conversation, people were like, hey, so what are you in here for? And I would tell them, uh, they would ask me who I was running guns for. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, Bass Pro Shops? That's, I mean, <laughs> where, I, that's where I bought them. <laughs> I mean, when you read the charges, if you, if you just read those charges – um, out loud and not knowing anything else about your case, you might think you were some kind of high, you know, some, some gun trafficker or something like that, and not just a guy that purchased a gun at Bass Pro Shops. I mean, it, it sounds funny, but it's not, because that, that purchase eventually did land you in jail in the state of New Jersey, which is frightening. Now, not to spoil the end of the book, Brian, but uh, I think it's obvious since you're you're out here talking with me that you didn't spend those seven years in jail, so how did you actually find yourself getting out of jail and being free now? To, uh, to be out here speaking about your incident uh, and, and trying to eventually, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, reunite yourself with your son? Uh, well, I mean, tens of thousands, I, I think something like a quarter of a million people uh, from all over the world called uh, and wrote to Governor Christie. I got, when, just when I was in prison, I got you know, a steady stream of one or two or three letters a day, and that quickly turned into 10, 20, 30, 40 letters a day coming from uh, you know, commanding officers serving in Afghanistan who, who were saying, uh, I, I can't believe that I'm out here in this third world country fighting for, for freedom and democracy in this country, and back home in America, this is happening to you. It doesn't make any sense. 
But so many people called and wrote the governor uh, that eventually, after spending four months in prison, Governor Christie commuted my sentence and let me out of prison. And that's been, uh, it's been about five years now. Yeah, five years. Now, you say he commuted your sentence, and that is different than a full pardon. So can you just explain why you got your sentence commuted, just let out of jail, but not, not an actual pardon for all the charges? Can you, can you just explain the difference there? So a pardon pretty much forgives you for the crime that you committed. And as a matter of principle, I didn't want to be forgiven for those convictions. I wanted to have my sentence commuted. I wanted to get out of prison, and I wanted to fight the convictions through the appellate division. And that's what I did. Uh, the appellate division overturned the conviction of illegal possession of firearms and illegal possession of high-capacity magazines, but they upheld the conviction of illegal possession of hollow-point ammunition. And what they did is very interesting. So all of those moving exemptions that I told you about, how you're allowed to take your firearms from the place of purchase to your house – from your house to go hunting, from your house to your shooting range, and from one house to another when you're moving. Well, hollow point ammunition has all of the same exemptions. You're allowed to own hollow points in the state of New Jersey, and they have all of those same exemptions, except it doesn't specifically say that you can take your hollow points from one house to another when you're moving. So they decided that it's illegal for law-abiding gun owners who legally own hollow points to take their hollow points from one house to another when they're moving uh, what they're supposed to do with them, I have no idea. It's a mystery to me. I guess we're supposed to leave them behind for whoever moves into our previous residence. I guess so. That's the only that's the only option left that I can think of. It doesn't make any sense, but uh, you know, for that one reason, I'm a convicted felon still. Do you regret anything? Oh, you know, that's a that's a challenging question. Um, I think I regret listening to that cop. That's really the only thing that I regret was right. was. You know, believing that I was, you know, subservient to him and actually turning around and, and going back when I didn't have to. I just wish I knew more at that time. But, yeah, and that just comes from, I mean, I don't even want to say ignorance because, look, I know the Fourth Amendment. I know my rights. And I don't know what I would have done in this situation because when you have a police officer, it's one thing to, you know, read a law or, you know, know, know what the right is supposed to be. But when you have a police officer basically threatening threatening you with kidnapping. I mean, it's essentially what they did. They said they would put you in this institution for 72 hours if you didn't, you know, let them search the car right then and there. I mean, they're they're basically threatening you with violence before you've even been charged or with anything at all. And it's it's certainly a frightening thing that that they can even they're they're even allowed to to use those tactics and and to basically threaten people with with an illegal search or it became a legal search once you consented to it, but that consent was certainly certainly under duress and not something you actually wanted to consent to. Brian, I'm curious now. I know, I know you said you're a former neocon, as we talked about, and obviously this experience has has changed your views in many ways. So can you just describe your political views now, how have they changed? How has have these series of incidents, I, I might want to call them, changed your views, your political views overall? Um, well, I'm not a big fan of labels, but immediately after uh, getting released, I was hired as the director of new media for the Foundation for Economic Education, which is you know, a, a foundation based upon free market economics and uh, you know, Hayekian economics and Mises. So I, I, I've definitely gone a little bit you know, towards the free market route. Um, and, you know, I, I really just kind of believe in the freedom philosophy that, uh, you know, people should be left alone. If they're not hurting anybody, you know, leave them up to their own devices. Uh, Brian, this is a fascinating story. And I've got a couple more points I want to address with you. But first, I want to take a minute to tell everyone about our sponsor, Health Excellence Select. 
Now, until last year, I was just like you guys. I saw my health insurance cost double and my deductibles skyrocket thanks to the Obamacare health insurance mandates. Determined not to participate in this corporatist scheme, I sought an alternative and found out about health sharing, a fantastic concept in which your monthly fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not into the pockets of some crony capitalist fat cat. Health Excellence Select combines health sharing with a patient care personal assistant, 24-7 phone access to board-certified physicians, and discounts on dental, vision, and other benefits. The best part is that for most people, plans with Health Excellence Select are much more affordable than Obamacare insurance, and it meets the legal mandate, so you will not be fined for using it in lieu of insurance. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com health. You know, in your book, you focus on the left and their war on guns. Not so much in the book, but in the title. And that is appropriate because, I mean, I don't really hear any right-wing talk show hosts calling for, you know, gun laws and gun control and that kind of thing. That that specific sort of call does come from the left. But at the same time, the call for to arrest people for victimless crimes, that comes from across the spectrum. Uh, whether it's owning some a plant, whether it's holding a gun, uh, whether it's not buying health insurance. I mean, there are so many things that are laws that are considered, you know, crimes that where there's no victim there's no victim whatsoever and i and i think i'm sure that is um a part of kind of how you've changed your philosophy seeing that you know how these laws have targeted people who aren't violent who aren't victims and i i know you mentioned a few at the top can you just mention a couple cases i know you you recently wrote an article detailing it 10 or 10 people that have been horribly affected by bad gun laws can you just touch on a couple of the cases that you've learned about throughout this process since you've been out of jail yeah absolutely uh before i do that uh i would like to mention uh, there is an organization called Right on Crime. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not. They're they're based out of Texas, and I think it's a part of the uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation. But they are preparing the uh, the Republican case, if you will, the conservative value case for criminal justice reform, uh, for decriminalizing and destigmatizing a lot of things. And for, you know, shutting down prisons and, and stopping this mass incarceration of American citizens. Well, that's great. It's been very successful in the state of Texas. The last time that I talked to the guy who runs the program, two entire prisons, two whole prisons had been shut down uh, just, just as a consequence of the work that they were doing in Texas. And I mean, we're talking about thousands of nonviolent uh, people being able to go back and, and live their lives, go back to their families and their jobs. But it, it makes the economic case for uh, for that. Um, but uh, so, so some of the some of the examples uh, of people who have found themselves in similar situations to myself, uh, obviously Shanine Allen. I think uh, a lot of people who are probably listening to this podcast are familiar with what happened to Shanine. Uh, but she had a concealed carry permit from the state of Pennsylvania, and she had taken the class and and everything. But nobody ever told her that uh, New Jersey didn't have reciprocity. So she got pulled over in the state of New Jersey with her with her concealed carry uh, permit and her firearm, and she did what everybody you know tells you you're supposed to do. And she said, "Hey, I've got a concealed carry weapon. Here's my permit." And she got arrested and was facing ten years in prison. Uh, you know, so that's that's one of the very famous cases. Another one in New Jersey that that's recently in the news is uh, Stefan Davis, and uh, he actually he he got a very good plea deal, which is. I mean, just unheard of. He got one year probation if he if he pled to this. 
Um, but he had a firearm as, uh, as an armored truck, uh, operator. Uh, he was allowed to have a firearm for work, but he didn't have a concealed carry permit. So he got pulled over for a traffic violation, uh, and opened up his glove box and told the police officer, Hey, I've got this firearm. Uh, this is what I do for a living. You know, I have to carry it for work and I'm training to, to go into the police academy. I want to be a police officer. He's a young kid. I think he's 24 or 25 now. And, uh, you know, he was facing 10 years in prison for that, even though he was allowed to have it for work because he didn't have that concealed carry permit. And nobody in New Jersey gets a concealed carry permit. It's it's just it's nearly impossible. Wow, that is just unbelievable. Yeah. And I, 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 the reason I wanted to ask you about those other cases is, you know, some people might say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, maybe some maybe some angry judge or prosecutor might go after somebody the wrong way. And, but this is just an isolated incident. These things are going to happen. But it's not an isolated incident. It's a it's a series of bad laws. And anytime you have a series of laws that are essentially targeting innocent people, people that have not harmed anyone, and, you know, it's and I don't know how many gangbangers are brought up on charges like this, because I think the, the violent people out there are probably brought up on the, the actual violence that they commit. It, it seems like laws like this that specifically target only ownership of, of whether it's a gun or a, or a substance, a plant or what have you, they only seem to target people that are completely nonviolent, people that are, if anything, trying to do things the right way. You, know, you call the police, you try to do things the right way. This other woman, what was her name again? Uh, there's, there's actually, there's, there's two cases, well, there's two people that I want to talk about um who are also victims of stupid gun laws uh and that i mentioned in the article that that went out today uh one of them obviously gordon van gilder the 72 year old retired school teacher who collects 18th century artifacts and was was arrested this year for having a 300 year old flintlock pistol that's federally protected he's allowed to have it federally uh, but new jersey regulates as an illegal firearm the prosecution refuses to drop the case they're trying to actually convict this guy and if he's convicted because of the graves act he's required to have a five to ten year sentence with a minimum mandatory of 42 months they increased the graves act min- minimum mandatory from 36 to 42 months ah, so things have actually gotten worse not better since since your trial yeah, in a lot of ways they have. God, that is just awful. And uh, he, he's refusing all of the plea deals. Um, it, it's rare. You, you really only see that with people who are at like the end of their rope. Uh, Shanine Allen, uh, she refused plea deals, but eventually she was given one. She took it. Um, Stefan also uh, took a plea deal. And uh, after, after he took it, he became very upset with the fact that he, that he took that deal. And so now he's appealing that and he's trying to change that because there was actually an amnesty period that nobody told him about. But but when he was arrested, it was during that amnesty period. So he he's appealing it to the appellate division right now so that he can have that overturned. Uh, and and the most important victim in my life and and that I think we were going to talk about a little bit earlier and the reason why I'm you know doing podcasts and writing articles now is my son. And uh, before I was even convicted of illegal possessions of firearms, which is a nonviolent victimless crime. A family court judge uh, took custody of my son away from me because he didn't like that I could own firearms if I wanted to. And this is important because I didn't actually own firearms at the time. I had, I had been arrested. I had been indicted. The Mount Laurel Police Department had my firearms, but I wasn't convicted yet. So there was some gray area where uh, the judge believed that I could actually go to the store and buy firearms if I wanted to so that I could legally own firearms. So he told me, I'm not convinced that if you wanted to own firearms, you wouldn't be able to. So for that reason, I'm not letting you see your son unless it's for one hour a week. 
in a room reserved inside of the Ocean City Courthouse with a police officer supervising you. And none of those things have ever lined up. It's been, it's been six years since I've been able to see my son. And as soon as I got out of prison, I, I took the signed commutation order signed by Governor Christie. I went to the family court judge. I said, if you were ever worried about me or firearms or the kind of person that I am, you shouldn't be. Because there's no way that a guy like Governor Christie, who I think we all believe has political ambitions far greater than being a governor, is going to put his neck out in the line for somebody who could be the person that you're making me out to be. Absolutely. And, uh, and he said, as far as I'm concerned, you're still a convicted felon and Governor Christie has nothing to do with this and nothing is changing. You're still not allowed to see your son. Wow. That is just awful. And Brian, as you mentioned, you're, you're doing this campaign. You're trying to raise awareness of this issue and you actually have launched a campaign to raise funds to, you know, you've got a family lawyer, I believe retained right now, um, to try to fight this and try to actually see your son who you haven't seen. I believe you said it's been six years. Six years, yeah. Wow. So why don't you tell everybody about this campaign, this Logan's Heroes campaign, to hopefully uh, reunite yourself with your son at some point? Uh, so my son's name is Logan, and uh, when when I think about him, uh, it, it's strange because I only know him from when he was one year old. Wow. And he's, he's, he's a person now. He, he just turned seven. His birthday was on February 15th. And I have no idea what kind of person he is. I don't know what he does for fun. I don't know what he wants to do when he grows up. Uh, I've never even heard his voice. And it's not right. I deserve to have him in my life, and he deserves to have a father uh, that he knows is alive and cares about him. And who knows what, what he thinks about me. Maybe he thinks I'm a deadbeat father. Maybe somebody told him that. You know, I'm dead, and that's just the easiest way to deal with the situation. I have no idea. But the, the time has come, and all of the proceeds from the sale of my book have been put towards a family re- lawyer's uh, retainer to help me get custody of my son back. And so we have this fundraiser. It's at logansherocom And a, a bunch of uh, companies have, have really chipped in to help me um, raise the money by, by giving me donations to fundraise. So, for example, Front Sight Institute, I think a lot of people are familiar with Front Sight. They're a big firearms training facility outside of Las Vegas. Um, and Dr. Piazza has donated a $1,000 two-day defensive handgun course to every single person who donates $100 or more. Wow. You can't get a better deal than that, folks. And and the money obviously goes to a very good cause. So I do encourage you to check out uh, Logan's Hero. We will link to all this stuff as well um, on the sh- in the show notes for this podcast. And uh, we'll really try to, to push this stuff because, I mean, of all the people out there that should be targeted by law enforcement, and I certainly feel there's a role for law enforcement in society, uh, you are about the last person on the list that should, should have to go through something like this. Someone who, even if you are a gun control advocate, you're, you followed every step of the law. And, and it's, just, it's just outrageous that something like this could be so politicized, could, um, that the justice system could be so skewed to actually not only send you to jail, I mean, I'm sure your experience spending four months in jail was no fun, your experience fighting this stuff in court was no fun, but ultimately they've deprived you of of this time with your son. And to me that's just um, it's absolutely atrocious and, and wrong. And there's there's no way to change the past, but uh, hopefully we can help change your future, and, and hopefully that in future includes some time with your son. So, Brian, uh, thank you so much for coming on and t- talking about this the story that you have here. And, you know, again, I, I wish you the best of luck uh, with, with everything you're doing, and I, I truly hope to see you reunited with your son at some point. Thanks, Mark. It's, uh, it's my only resolution for 2015. Great, Brian. Well, again, take care, Brian. Thank you for coming to the show, and best of luck. Thanks, Mark. Have a good one. Thanks, Brian.
Oh, man. What what can I say that already hasn't been said about Brian Aitken's story, guys? I mean, it's really uh, it's really unbelievable to me anyway. And, and I'm someone who, who follows, who's been following all the ridiculous arrests that we see, all the absurd cases that we see out there. We cover them every single day at our website at lionsofliberty.com, in the morning roar, in all the various articles we do. Felony Friday, our own John Odermatt covers stories like this all the time. But this is even with all that knowledge and everything I've seen over the years, this story is still just blows my mind. And, and on so many levels, really, I mean, it, it shows you not just what's wrong with gun laws per se, although the gun laws in New Jersey are particularly draconian, even worse than the laws in my state here of California, which has some pretty onerous gun regulations itself. But it still sounds like it's nowhere near as hostile an atmosphere towards gun owners as the state of New Jersey. And, and why is that? Well, the majority of people in New Jersey happen not like guns that much. I mean, a lot of people do, obviously, but not enough to not vote for politicians that are going to enact and enforce laws like this. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't think of gun laws or maybe a lot of the laws they support in a very thorough manner, in a rigorous manner. They don't really necessarily see the types of people that are going to be ensnared in these laws. And and in this case, in Brian Aiken's case, he didn't even break the law. That's what's really, really scary about this. Even if even if you wanted to say, well, you know, the guy broke the law, clearly he needs to, he needs to pay, you know, the law is the law. Yeah, the law is the law. He didn't break it. He didn't break a single law. The scariest part about this is, is it seems like it became personal. It became personal for the judge. He didn't like that Brian Aiken was going on Fox News. Well, the guy was out of money. What else is he supposed to do at that point? Either he can sit there, mum, not say a word, and just watch his life flush down the toilet, watch him just sent away for, a, for no crime whatsoever, for harming nobody, never see his son again, or he can fight and he can speak out. And that's what Brian Aiken did. And, you know, he did the right thing the whole way, other than, of course, as he, as he mentioned, turning back around, um, coming back at the request of the police, allowing them to search his car. But why should he even be in that predicament in the first place? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that officer should be charged with attempted kidnapping. I mean, that's essentially what he threatened Brian Aiken with if he didn't comply with his orders. Using the threat of law enforcement to push a political agenda, to push a dislike for something, is just such a despicable thing, you know? Not everything you dislike. If you don't like guns, that's fine. But that doesn't mean you can just take a little magic wand, wave it over the state of New Jersey, wave it over the United States, wave it over the world for some people that just think guns should be banned all over and tell people they cannot have certain items. You can do it, but it's going to have consequences. And most of those consequences are going to land on the supposedly unintended targets, on the peaceful, even law-abiding citizens, such as Brian Aiken. And, but even, even beyond that, you know, it tells us about our family court system. I mean, the fact that he owned guns was used against him to, to essentially bar him from seeing his son. And he had bought those guns. He didn't mention this in the interview, but please, please do get the book, Blue Tent Sky. I will link to it in our show notes, of course. And please go check out Logan'sHero.com. Please consider donating to Brian Aiken's campaign. If, if you ever, I mean, think about how much money you might spend on stupid crap you don't need or on a couple beers. Well, maybe have a couple less beers this week or, you know, don't go out to dinner next week and instead support Brian Aiken because his fight is not just his own fight for his son. It's a fight for everybody. It's a fight for our rights, a fight for our rights as human beings, our right to to our freedom, a right to see our children. I mean, as, as, so long as we haven't actually abused them or wronged them, as Brian Aiken has not in any way, shape, or form. 
Um, this is a case that really struck me from a personal level. I mean, I, I can't recommend, I know I said it at the top of the show, but I can't recommend this book highly enough. And, you know, if ever there was a cause to get behind, it's Brian Aiken's cause. So I do highly encourage you all to, you know, look further into his story. Please read the book Blue Tent Sky and please check out Logan's Hero. There are some amazing, amazing perks on there. Like you said, for just $100, you can get a $1,000 two-day gun course in Nevada. You know, you can get all sorts of handguns, ARs at prices you could never actually buy them at in the market, while at the same time giving to Brian's great cause. Uh, so it really is something you should all check out. Even if you don't like guns, there's a, there's a ton of other stuff on there you can get. You can get signed copies of the book, cool little patches. Even if you weren't getting anything, I would recommend donating to this cause because it's certainly a worthy one. And if hopefully, uh, you know, if enough people out there hear interviews like this, read Brian's book, hopefully we can have some justice in the world. We can never give Brian the four months back of his life. We can never give Brian the, the years he spent in court. We can never give him back all the money he spent, all the distress and everything like that. But there is a way to help him, and there is a way to help reunite him with his son, and hopefully we can see a little justice in this in this one instance. So I encourage you to check it out. I encourage you to keep coming back and listening to this show if you like my interview with Brian Aiken. I try to get engaging guests on. I try to get people on who I know are going to captivate my audience, and, and I hope Brian Aiken's story certainly captivated, maybe frightened you in many ways. It certainly did with me. Please come on back this coming Thursday. And I'm going to have a gentleman on by the name of Brad Burge. He is a representative of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. This organization researches psychedelic drugs such as LSD, ayahuasca, MDMA, and how they can actually be used as therapy, in conjunction with therapy anyway, to you know treat all sorts of symptoms that, and all sorts of mental disorders, including mostly PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, which you know is a big topic in the news with so many soldiers, particularly coming home from war, having serious mental trauma from this experience. And this is one organization that, you know, despite the war on drugs, despite all the laws against these drugs, they have found some legal means to go through the FDA and conduct some legitimate scientific research into the stuff. So I'm really looking forward to that. And until then, folks, live long and live free.